Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. All my David Kennedy and Kieran Murphy all back from our podcasting adventures in San Francisco. Hello, there, lads. Hello, there, yeah, you And the burning question is: Did Ken enjoy his day out of the baseball? Yeah. A lot of people have asked me this, Ken. I did, actually. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, largely thanks to the outstanding hospitality of Brian Murphy. <laughs> we, we should mention we were in KMB Horse Corporate Street, really getting a feel for how the locals experience their baseball. <laughs> I mean, we could see how the locals experience their baseball from a safe height. From our ivory tower. Uh, yeah, so we did get we did have that. I, yeah, I mean, when we met, we met Brian Murphy at the Willie Mays statue. Mm-hmm. He immediately handed me a, a San Francisco Giants baseball cap which was his gift to me, uh, of which I was very appreciative. Uh, presents, getting unexpected presents on, it just makes you feel good about things. So I was feeling good uh, walking in there. Then I saw the spread that was put on there, hot dogs, sort of uh, tacos, um, you know, with a couple of drinks, wine, beer, whatnot. Had myself a hot dog heavy on sauerkraut. Uh, then I ate like a taco. Uh, then I ate another hot dog. All within the first and, half hour. I was starting to feel a little green red hills. That's, <laughs> that's basically what happened here. I mean, it was, it was, oh my God, like a, like a gazelle getting taken down in the savannah. That's basically what Ken Early did to the, yeah, the buffet in there. It was awful. But you know, there was, I have to say, I mean, uh, you know, Brian was explaining some of the rules. And okay, the rules actually aren't that complicated. No. There's, a, there's a few nuances to the game, which I, I imagine would take me a much longer time to, to really begin to fully grasp. But uh, the thing that I thought about it was was um, this guy, Madison Bumgarner, is actually, you know, one of the top exponents of this sport in the world. I'm actually getting to see a masterful performance from a world-class player here. You know, it's not every time you go and see a match uh, in any sport that you can say, wow, that's actually one of the best guys in the world I've seen doing this. Two thing. of the best guys, two of the best pitchers up against Kershaw each other. Kershaw also, yeah. the other pitcher. Um, but yeah, he was he was fantastic. You know, that kind of... Um, I mean, he was he. Someone turned around at some point and said, "Hang on, does this guy basically just do everything on this team?" Yeah, because I mean, he hit the he hit a home run off uh, Kershaw, first home run that Kershaw has conceded against a fellow pitcher. It was amazing. I mean, um, 
you know, he he was really he was dominant at every aspect of it. So yeah, it was uh, it was it was enjoyable. I I had. Um, I had plenty of nice food and drink, and uh, you could have been at any sporting event. The weather, really, the weather was good. Yeah, a corporate box anywhere would have would have done you. Yeah, it was it was it was nice. Our last podcast from San Francisco was our live event on Wednesday night from Johnny Foley's Irish House featuring U.S. Murph, Richie Sadler, and Lawrence Donegan. Have a listen to that now if you haven't had a chance yet. Thursday was a hell of a day because before the baseball, it started out with our first ever appearance on KMBR's Murph and Max show. It has been, people have asked me a few times over the years, have you guys ever gone on his show? I said, <laughs> well, no, we haven't uh, necessarily, but there's not a massive need or a massive call for the, the Irish sport, yeah, the yeah, week the, in Irish sport. The interest of, uh, you know, Bay Area listeners in the All-Ireland Senior Hurling and Football Championships isn't quite as big as the interest over here in the NFL, NBA and MLB. I mean, do we need to apologise for that? Do Did we feel horribly insulted at not having been invited on US Murph's show bit. until... A little. But maybe just just by a sheer presence in the city, Brian felt he had to be polite and offer us the opportunity to appear on his program. So myself and Murph popped in to chat to Brian Murph and Paulie Mack. So these boys, and so Owen from Dublin, and then Kieran Murphy representing, as they, as they say, the culchi, which is yeah. a uh, an Irish word for a country or a hick. And he's out from Galway, Paulie, which oh, would be yeah, kind of the equivalent yeah, yeah. of like Bakersfield. Nice. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> Galway is basically the. It's actually the San Francisco. Of Ireland. That's a because, true story, actually, yeah. yeah. Because it's on the West Coast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's seen as a little alternative, much more relaxed pace of life than the rest of the country, maybe. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but I mean, I've been living in Dublin for 11 years. But it's years. true, actually. If you need to know the, the, the Ireland for dummies, Dublin is New York City on the East Coast, the big bustling city. Galway is San Francisco, the arty alternative place on the West nice. Coast. I'll so, go to and, Galway. Uh, yeah. And there's uh, very little in between. Well, but then Cork is Philadelphia, the angry, self-absorbed place <laughs> down there in the Southwest, right? Oh, Simon's cut out the bit where I distanced myself from those comments, by the way, Cork <laughs> listeners, just, just so you know. Ken, what did you think of our appearance there? Uh, have you ever seen... I noticed you... you it's like you didn't get his allusion to Bakersfield, Kieran. I wouldn't have got it either, but I have since Google image Googled Bakersfield. It. Okay. <laughs> what is it? A little bit uh, harsh enough. R- rural. Um, well, it just all it has is a um, a collection of pretty dull looking buildings with a uh, a sort of a yellow uh, bridge over the highway into it that says Bakersfield. How very dare he! Um, How could he say such a thing? Go away as as San Francisco, really. Well, yeah, in that there's a smell of weed hanging over both of us. <laughs> like a cloud. A permanent pall of weed smoke. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll grant you that the geography plus the weed, there, maybe there's not a whole lot else to to recommend or to, to, to further back. Isn't there a, a vibrant tech sector in Goa as well? Uh, well. Isn't there? No, not Sil- really. The Silicon Valley of the West Coast. That's what I Martin. thought. That's what I heard. Uh, no. dri- driving prices up to catastrophic levels as, as has happened in San Francisco. There's a bay, both yes. Cities, both cities have a bay. Yeah, songs about the bay are numerous. Uh, bridges, they both have bridges, different sizes and colours and shapes. Well, yeah, we, we wouldn't have anything now on the scale of the Golden Gate now, Owen. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and, and, and claim that one. If you were to map Ireland onto the United States and say what each of these cities were, I mean, I don't know. I suppose that would make Limerick Los Angeles. Ken Mayer would be San Diego. Yeah. Maybe Fermoy or somewhere like that would be Waco. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, Letterkenny, um, Donegal Town, Seattle. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we could, we could keep we, going we like this literally all day. But from KMBR, uh, last Wednesday, last Thursday to AT&T Park for Giants versus Dodgers to see Madison Bumgarner 
Sure. So Brian told us a great story about Bumgarner just before Brian left us mid game. He had to go and coach his little hotshot Declan in the Little League game that afternoon. Probably hit another. We haven't heard yet uh, from that game, but presumably another Grand Slam home run. It's for what young he Declan. does. Murph got one more question, or maybe it was Richie Sadler. One more question in before we left, and that was, what salary? What, how much does this Bumgarner guy get paid? And US Murph said, ah, that's another story. It's another folksy type of story about Madison Bumgarner. Apparently, a number of years ago. The Giants said to him, listen, Madison, we can mess around with this, you know, these short-term deals. You could go in, you could go into free agency in a year or two, and sure, you could command a load of money, but we, wanna, we want you here for a long time, and we'll give you a reasonable amount. We'll give you about 8, 9 million, rising to 10, rising to 11. Ultimately, you could get paid 12, 13 million. And he said, yeah, that's fine. Now, as it turns out, if he'd waited to go to free agency, he could have then played the, the Giants off a load of other teams, and been paid probably about twenty five or thirty million. Thirty million dollars a year. Eh? Apparently, Bumgarner's attitude is ten million, thirty million. Can I do much more with thirty million than I can with ten? Look, enough is enough. Not on Bumgarner's world. No, I mean, uh, someone was telling me there that that uh, apparently someone was kind of taking a peek into his car, and his car was like completely filthy. No, you've taken the yeah, yeah. Oh, go on. I yeah, know you've you've taken this story. It's, uh, that's myself and Simon's story. But listen, you run with it. Myself and Simon met a random. Uh, listener to this is after we, we heard appear- from the same. We may have heard it from the same person. They were saying, "Oh, you know, look at and the car was like full of all this, um, uh, like mud and and uh, boots with spurs on them boots, and stuff. Yeah, like he literally just got off a horse. Well, you like, see, once we had finished on KMBR, we suddenly started being recognised. Our voices started being recognised by taxi drivers. Yeah, a taxi driver recognised our voices. You're the Irish guys on Murphy Mac, and we're like, yeah. And then a random person at the stadium, myself and Simon, started speaking to, and she told us. Uh, I thought it was her anyway. Who told us that story about Madison Bumgarner? That taxi driver, Ken, um, amazingly, who, who recognised her voices. His dad played for Dynamo Kiev in the 1970s. Um, yeah, that was that was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And then the woman, the woman on the sitting next to me on the plane uh, home from. Uh, uh, from San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I'd also heard you on the radio. Ah, amazing. Um, a lot of people listen to Murphy Mack and KMBR, apparently. I then took the train to Oakland after the game, to Oracle Arena, to get to Game 2 of the NBA's Western Conference Finals. Golden State Warriors versus Houston Rockets. Uh, even before the game tipped off, Murph, I knew I'd made a good call here, because do you want to hear the lineup of celebs introduced to the crowd? Go on, then. MC Hammer. Okay. Big ovation. Montel Jordan. This is how we do it. Of This is how we do it fame. Is Montel Jordan the same Montel that used to present a talk show on television. You've stretched my knowledge of Montel Jordan's career to its limits, Murph. The I show, do not know. The show you see on was called That wasn't that Mon- Montel. That was, that was Montel Williams. Williams. Ah. Yeah. And still blessed to be on top of this. The game. biggest Bay Area celeb of all, Barry Bonds. Oh, yeah. This is a man who I've never even seen smile before. Even when he was hitting the home runs and before all the <clears throat> uh, questions started being the raised. The unpleasantness on. Uh, he was beaming largely because he got probably the biggest ovation of them all. Amazing ovation from the crowd. I turned to the guy beside me and I said, hang on, do you do you guys follow the news? Did you not hear? I'm there preaching about performance-enhancing drugs, mm-hmm. and the fellow beside me saying, "Listen, mate, relax." I mean, we America loves a winner. No, we? America hates Barry Bonds, but San Francisco loves, loves Barry. Bonds. That's the the key difference here. Uh, the atmosphere is absolutely incredible. A one-point game, amazing defensive play by Steph Curry, the superstar, to win it. And since then, they had Game Three on Saturday night. Steph Curry hit 40 points in that. But the most remarkable—I just watched this on TV after I got back. The most remarkable moment of it was when he rebounded. Ahead of essentially Dwight Howard, 
probably the biggest guy on the mm-hmm. uh, on the Houston team. Was a, was just waiting there under the basket to catch a ball. Uh, that's partly his job, largely his job. Uh, in the meantime, Steph Curry decides, yeah, I'm half his size, but I'll just nudge him out of the way here, get up above him. Well, stop him from jumping and catch the ball. Highly embarrassing moment for Dwight Howard and another part of the Steph Curry lore in this. It looks like it's going to be Steph Curry against LeBron James in the NBA Finals. And I'm sure we'll chat to US Murph about that later in the week. But we arrived back late on Saturday morning and you made your way, Ken, straight to Dublin Castle. Yeah, I did. Um, I was there for the... I uh, went along for the announcement. The announcement took longer than expected uh, because of the slow coach uh, Cork constituencies uh, who just weren't giving out the results anytime soon. Uh, so we were all just standing there in, in the square in Dublin Castle waiting, waiting and waiting to see. I mean, there was obviously there was a map up there and a screen and um, uh, poor old Ross Common just highlighted a different colour uh, from everybody, everyone else. Uh, <laughs> Don't absolve South Leitrim from this as well now. Ross Common and South Leitrim uh, joined together in, in uh, shame uh, as everybody was looking up, uh, just not quite fitting with the dominant groove of the uh, of the day there's a very nice atmosphere there and then the politicians started arriving and they kind of came up and we got to see this golden generation of irish politicians uh, bask in the acclaim of the people they had liberated <laughs> and uh, everyone was everyone was delighted with that uh, and then eventually obviously the actually i think i think maybe my favorite moment of the of that experience because it was i mean it did turn into a kind of interminable Oh, I wish they, you know, I wish they had like a beer cart in here. You know, we, I didn't think it would take this long. Will we go? No, we've already been here so long. No, we should, we should wait around. Uh, you know, um, eventually the, uh, uh, you know, the what do you call her, returning officer, mm-hmm. came up. I, we actually thought it would be there in front of us, but in fact it was inside, so we were watching on the screen. And then uh, the returning officer came and gave the results, you know, and which is has to be read out in Irish first, which people don't quite understand, but we know that it's, mm. you know... That's it, what this highlighted for me as much <laughs> as anything about this country. We really don't know our, our Irish language okay, particularly. Is that, is that good? Is it time that's to cheer? Is that, yeah. the, is that the result or just some other thing in Irish <laughs> that we don't understand? Um, you know, even she was stumbling over the numbers a little bit, I think. Uh, in You know, we're not used to saying numbers in the, in the hundreds of thousands or millions in Irish. Uh, but then... Uh, when she finished, everyone was cheering. Oh, you know, it was great. Everyone, and you know, there were people crying, and also you looked around, and people were were kind of weeping, and it was generally quite emotional. And then she said, "Ah, oh, now the second referendum," and everyone just laughed, <laughs> including in including in whatever in room she room, was in. Yeah. All these political dignitaries and journalists, everyone was just laughing at the ridiculous idea of the second You're, referendum. Just why don't you text us? You, you just <laughs> yeah, do, you just drop me a text when that's done. Do yeah, please don't, because I would I would like to know, but I got to go now. So uh, yeah, do drop me. A as a 36-year-old, can't say I was disappointed with the result of the, of the second referendum. Then, you know, yeah. I've, earned, I've earned my special status in society. Well, there were people walking around with uh, posters, sort of placards saying, 60, was it 62.8% in the end? Uh, the yes vote, carrying them around town with the, on top of the pride flag, which is getting a great big cheers. I didn't notice the no campaign in the second referendum being quite as triumphant. There were, there were no uh, whatever... Thirty-three point three percent. What was it? It was at seven. It was over 70% now, I think, for, for that one. But, I mean, I was talking to a guy earlier on that day who said that he'd been helping with the count. And I'm pretty sure the story they told me was, so they were there. They, you know, people can volunteer to help with the count or whatever. And people were turning up to say, hey, you know, I want to like, help out with the count. And they're like, yeah, actually, we've got loads of people helping with the first count. What we need is some people helping in the second <laughs> count. And they're like, no, not doing that. <laughs> 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 Just, no one wanted to be part of 
that I'll, particular I'll like history. Her, uh, democracy there. All right, now, as we've been recording this show today, the tragic news has emerged that Bill O'Hurley has died, a huge figure in so many great Irish sporting moments over so many years. We were lucky enough to have Bill in studio here last summer after he'd finished up his final World Cup. It was late August when he came in. He was in absolutely brilliant form that day, I remember. Just really generous with his time talked us through some of the major moments of his career, including those before he joined the sports department in Orti a long time ago. Now, we have actually put that interview back up today as a separate podcast, so have a listen to that if you can, and uh, our condolences once again go to Bill's friends and family. We'll have Jerry Thorny in studio later to talk about the role that Roman Poit had to play in denying Connick the shot at the Champions Cup next year. The first big hurling championship game of the season featured a drab enough first half between Limerick and Clare, a much better second, a tight win for Limerick, and a sense of grievance being nursed by David Fitzgerald after the game. Davey, uh, just a point short, uh, just uh, tell us how you're feeling right now. Hard to take. Um, don't think we deserve to lose that. So, well done to Limerick. Hard to take in what, in what way? What's, what do you think it was? Clearly you're not going to draw me in it and just well done to Limerick. Did you think that there should have been a bit more time added on there at the end? I have no comment to make on it. And, um, you have a look at all the facts, you'll see them. I, I have no comment to make, and that's it. And um, I'm very, very, very proud of the Clare team and the Clare supporters today. They absolutely were immense, so they are, and I'm not going to concentrate on anything else um, whatsoever. And um, I'm really proud of my team. Six points down, they showed some character. But I am 100% certain we did not deserve to lose that game. I'm 100% certain of that. What do you think cost you the game then? Well, I won't go into that. I won't go into that. I'd say it's pretty easy if you analyse the stats of the game, you'll know why we lost the game. Did you think you were unfairly treated by the officials? No, I, listen, I'm not saying. Clear, I think it's very unfair to put me in that position. All I said is fair play to Limerick and well done. You know, I'm, I'm not getting into that. I'm, I'm bitterly disappointed. I don't feel we deserve to lose that game. So I don't, you know, and... Um, I just my dressing room inside, um, like the lads. No, I, I won't even go into it. It's, it's okay. Well done to Limerick and best of luck to Yeah, that's Davey after the game speaking to Ortiz, Claire McNamara. I've no comment to make in anything is not what any post-match reporter wants to hear. <laughs> Thankfully, Davey did keep talking for about five minutes after that. But mm. uh, first, he raised the idea that there was something up here. Yeah. And Claire McNamara followed up a few times. There are other and he was acting as though she was trying to drag him into this massive controversy. Yeah, there, there are other ways of not saying a lot in a post-match interview other than saying, I've got no comment to, to say about anything. <laughs> uh, there, there, it's just, there's a cannier game to be played there in, in front of the, uh, the media glare. Well, Owen Kelly's ready to go. And Limerick, uh, we'll, get, we'll, get, we'll get on to Davy and on to Clare, but Limerick seem to have this tag of being a bit inconsistent thrown at them in... Even in recent years, which is a bit strange because it seems like they generally either uh, either win games or lose narrowly, as it did to Kilkenny last year in the All-Ireland semi-final. They seem to have been at a very high level for the last couple of summers and pretty good again yesterday. They did, yeah. Yes, they know they really um, dug deep and probably built something into their team that was being questioned, definitely. Um, you know, and like they seem to be, the last season or two, they seem to be performing on the big day in the championship, you know. But, no, I suppose, look, Typical Limerick teams previously that when they went to Coke Park or maybe got to uh, latter stages, even in the Cup Championship or final, they would have been a letdown. But well, yes, it was a big test of character for them, and uh, they passed it with flying colours, you know. And they, like especially when they had a, a nice lead, a six-point lead, maybe a golden three-point, and then Clare got back into the game. And you know, John Fitzgibbon hitting the winning score would like that's a massive win, and I'm sure that 
buzzing, uh, dressing room was buzzing afterwards, especially after getting a win like that. Keen Lynch looked absolutely delighted in his post-match interview. Just a young lad coming out of a, a brilliant minor campaign last year. I mean, you've probably seen a lot of these guys that come into inter-county hurling very highly rated. Not all of them necessarily hit, hit the grade at senior level. What are you looking for in a young lad like that on days like yesterday? You're looking for a carefree attitude. I think that's what he ha- has. That's what he showed yesterday. Um a lot of pressure on him, especially his family connections and all that. You know, there wouldn't be a lot of hype built up, but you know, even in his uh, pre-match interviews and that, we'll say during the week, um, you know, he he was talking in a carefree, uh, a free spirit, spiritual kind of a way, and I think he showed that just. And for me, he was a joy to watch in the first half. Him and Shane O'Donnell kept me entertained actually for the first half. And you know, like you can look at uh, Keen Lynch, he flicked the ball over. I think Donald Donovan had at one stage, but just shows that he didn't really care. You know, he was he felt comfortable. And I, I said it before, like the first season or two that you're entering your inter-county team, the opposing teams and even the management, they, they know about you, but they actually don't have you analysed to death. So you get away with things in your first few games, your first season or two, that you might get away maybe down the road in four or five years, you know, because you're new to the thing and they know, they know about you, but you're not over-analysed. So I, I think he will be watched down the road, but yesterday he was, he was just brilliant and he showed for every ball. And when Nimrick needs a crucial score to who popped up with his keen Lynch. Yeah, you mentioned there that the first half was a little on the defensive side and uh, the TV pundits were, were pretty critical of the of the fare that had been served up for the first 35 minutes. I mean, you to, we talked to you after the league final and you were saying that, you know, tactics and hurling, it's been here for four or five years. Don't be pinning this all on, on the current Waterford team. I mean, the, a lot of the counties sat back and watched Kilkenny win All-Ireland after All-Ireland for 10 or 15 years. So I suppose we should just probably get used to the fact that they're going to try and level the playing field a bit by, by playing defensively. Yeah, and look, Kilkenny would have been tactically very much aware, even back as those six, like when they, they fell deep to counter that Cork uh, style of play. But like, yes, uh, you could say, and I've heard it before, paralysis by analysis. Like, you know, it was just... It was just in the middle third there, or in the centre of the field. I say they they seen most of the action and just little pop passes two and three yards and fumbling at the ball yesterday. And you know it, it was really two teams and individuals that were kind of wondering should I be standing here, should I be here, am I supposed to be playing back here? And until the controversy before half time, um, it, it was a horrible game to watch. To be honest with you, you know it was very stop start and then thank God um, you know it freed up uh, after half time. The Clare team have had three players sent off now in the last three championship games. Is Davey Fitzgerald a part of this discipline, disciplinary problem they seem to have? You see him haranguing a referee at half-time, doing a sort of a strange post-match interview where he's saying we didn't. He's, he's hinting at these dark forces again without actually coming out necessarily saying that they were robbed. Is Davey a part of the issue? I don't think he is. Now, I previously heard that they would have done a lot of tackling uh, around the 2013 season. You know, which obviously they carry into last season, and and they still and like some of the tackles, I think was 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 probably just no whistle blown. You know, in those uh, drill situations, so sometimes guys can develop bad habits. Like, so it's something that as a management team they'll definitely have to look at, and maybe they're being pumped up too much, and this is the reason they're they're lunging into some of the tackles and that. But like at that at that competitive level, you you can't afford to be down to fourteen men, thirteen men for any stage and you know last year they finished with 13-1 and one game and yesterday they finished with 14 so it's uh, it, it's disappointing but you know look he came out and played a different brand of hurling in the second half uh, clear after the tendon off and it was better to watch like, to be honest with you so I'd say Davey pumped him up more at half time 
but he obviously toned them down on on the on the tackling front. So, so they, they were better better in the tackle in the in the second half. Claire, would you prefer to see Davy coming out and just saying, "Look, these are the one, two, three issues that I have with this game," rather rather than these sort of interviews that he does where he throws throws a little bit out there and then. As he says himself, I'm not going to be drawn on that. But he, he's he's sort of bringing up the idea that maybe they were robbed, and then uh, and then kind of going into his shell a bit. Yeah, well, when he mentioned it yesterday, like the, the world knew what he was he was talking about, so he didn't have to get, get involved in the conversation. But look, um, I think with the GA this year, even if referee or if referees are, are getting hassle or getting stick from management teams and that, uh, even afterwards, the manager or his management team can be served with a. A suspension, so maybe he was just boxing clever yesterday. You know, you'd have to know the ins and outs of the rules, and I think that's there with the within the GA this year. So, um, you know, he wants to be parading up and down the line uh, for the first round of qualifier, not not to be sitting in the stands. So, um, no, it's look. There's a lot of rules there, and the referees are under a lot of pressure, and I think it added to column lines making one or two maybe uh, wrong decisions yesterday. In my opinion. What ones were wrong? Were they any? Were either of the reds incorrect in your opinion? No, the first red card was was correct. Pat Donnan had to go. He he any strike and head action red card. Uh, now Tony O'Grady, I thought probably a bit of gamesmanship there. I think he had the bandage on his head, or his physio, or doctor had the bandage on his head before he even hit the ground. Like and well, you could see after afterwards in the in the video clip there was no there was nothing there that was going to draw blood. We'll see. You know, it was just kind of under the under the, the face guard, so uh, it, it was head height, so it had to be a red card, no problem at all. But the second one was was terrible, and Pat O'Connor's gamesmanship there uh, caused Shawnee Tobin being sent off as well. So a small bit of common sense there by, by column lines, because look, it's Munster Championship, these guys are putting nine, ten months preparation into this, and just to hop off, off each other, when a sub comes on, we've seen that down the years. So I didn't, I, I didn't think there was any red card needed to be issued there, to be honest. What actually is going wrong? If it's not strictly just a disciplinary issue, what's the what is the problem with Clare at the moment that they can't seem to close out these kind of games? They've gone so long now; they won one game since April 2014. I don't. It seems as though they is it in their heads at this stage? They tense up a little bit in the last ten minutes of games when the championship winning teams should be actually coming stronger. Yeah, the last twenty minutes of the game they actually were hurling very well. Um, I think tactically, yes, maybe Donald Donovan was wasn't on top of his game. He got a bit of a clean in there yesterday, so he probably would have fallen for maybe a goal and three or four points on his direct opponents. Like I thought Shane Amory when he came on had a very good game and handled the ball a lot better and used the ball better. So I'd, I'd have him on the next day maybe instead of Donald. So one or two positionals, Aaron Cunningham will start the next day, and obviously he's three or four guys that he's missing. So so if Davy could get a handle on maybe four of that five or six. That's out. If you get a handle on the four of those back, I think you'll see him finishing out games and getting victories as the championship goes on. Is there a danger that you still seem comfortable enough that they can get you, that there's no psychological impact? Because when a team gets into a losing rut like this, you would have to start. Most people would start doubting themselves to a certain extent. You don't. You don't think it's gone that far yet that they're just in a losing cycle? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think Davey uh, kind of hinted on that yesterday as well. You know that you go through these these bad patches and I know it might be a year uh, that they have probably only won one competitive game but you probably only maybe play what six or seven games now look it is a lot he'll be disappointed with it but there is a winner mentality in that clear team from all their successes with the with win the Allard in 13 and the under 21s and I think if they can get one or two wins like I'd hate to draw them in the first round of the qualifiers to be honest if they get one or two wins get a couple of guys back Conor McGrath was he's a, he's a four or five pint man every game so he was playing yesterday would have got them over the line probably 
Um, if they get their win, one or two wins, momentum going, they'll be they'll be definitely definitely there come the All Ireland quarter final stage. Yeah, it's a funny one. They could go out the next round or could end up winning winning the All Ireland. So it's the, the margins at this sort of level. Let's know. We'll leave it there. Great stuff. Thanks a million. Take care, lads. And he is my second captain. Second captain. That's uh-huh. the humorous competition. I saw that. Important man for my selection. That was interesting that Owen talked about the carefree attitude being what you want from a minor player because the idea is that should always be there, but it's not necessarily the case. I guess the same can be said he's a little bit older, but Aaron Cunningham from Clare, we didn't even mention his ridiculous goals yesterday, Murph, two of them. Yeah, um, and he's a guy that you know the, the people have basically been waiting for people for Aaron Cunningham to do that for the last uh, couple of years because he has been brilliant at under-21 level, but see... Owen himself was in this situation. He played as a as a minor. He was still a minor when he made his Tipperary debut. So I suppose there is an element of him knowing exactly what uh, Keane Lynch was feeling yesterday, which is basically if I win one ball in front of my marker here, I've probably helped out and I've done about as much as as people are expecting of me. Um, and you know, you don't always get a chance to play with that kind of freedom. And uh, I would suggest that given how good he was yesterday, um, there's. You know the the expectation levels for his performance the next day against Tipperary will, are already a lot higher than they were uh, for his performance. Yeah, as, as Owen says, you should have a couple of years, even if he's heavily analysed. There are no trends when when the video analysis people are looking at how to combat somebody. They're generally looking for trends, and of course they can watch him at minor. But in terms of a senior game, to look, the weaknesses might only become apparent. Not even the weaknesses, but the habits might only become apparent over a certain amount of time. So. Owen certainly reckons you should get a season's grace there before people start knowing how to yeah. really get at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it just depends on how many more brilliant points he intends scoring in the uh, much Just relax, you've got to pace yourself here and mm. wait till the other and semi-final. The Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast is out. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What did you want? I'd like to stay alive. I'd say it to you, Fax. I'll say it to you now. What are you doing down here, you shiny man? Well, we'll hear a little bit from Sepp. You hear Sepp in that intro, so we're going to hear a little bit from him. He's done an interview, granted an audience. Um, People have been saying terrible things about him. Michel Platini suggests that uh, the only reason he's going for a fifth term is because he's afraid his life will be empty. Once he retires, um, so Sepp, uh, Sepp wasn't responding to that. Actually, that was he gave the interview before then. But um, his elections on Friday. We'll also talk about the last day of the Premier League season, which featured an evisceration for Liverpool at Stoke. We'll talk to Chris Boscombe about that. Hull got relegated. Um, John Bruin was there to see their game against Manchester United. Um, Newcastle stayed up. West Ham sacked Sam Allardyce. 
all of those things and uh, and more. I guess. Simon has popped over. Simon, how are you? Hey, how's it going? And Jerry Thorny is in. Jerry, how are you? Very good, thanks. Good morning. Uh, some crazy endings to the games with the Irish Cole. provinces of the weekend, and you were you're there to witness a couple of. Them. We might as well start with Connacht because okay. uh, I think we probably don't give them as much airtime as we should, and mm-hmm. that that's tended to happen over the years. They certainly deserve it this time. Unfortunately, uh, it's for the wrong reasons. A deep sense of injustice is what they seem to feel. That was the the banner headline at the top of your article. Yeah, um, I spoke to Pat Lamb afterwards, and uh, he was biting his tongue. You know, he's biting his lip because he's, he's had his knuckles wrapped before for making comments about Leighton Hodges after a couple of wrong decisions in overtime that cost them a win away to Cardiff. Um, they've always had a grievance about referees, but my guess is they will never have a bigger grievance than this one. It just was cruel beyond words to go into a bonus game, a playoff game, away from home to Gloucester, with 16 injuries, smaller squad, Gloucester, vastly bigger budget, studded with internationals, players like John Afoa, who didn't go there just for the, to see the countryside, because he left Ulster when he was already on a very good wedge to go there, and just different league, and just had a bad feeling about Romain Poitre in the middle. And less than a minute to go. It's like watching Ireland against the All Blacks or whatever, you know. I wonder about referees setting up exciting finishes. It just seems to follow them around, one or two in particular. And when John Muldoon took the ball into contact and was tackled, Tom Palmer clearly didn't roll away. Even the BT, even the English commentators called it. It was a scandalously bad decision, um, but typical of Pot, utterly out of character and inconsistent with all his other interpretations of the breakdown, where he was penalising players for not rolling away and did had done to Connacht earlier and would do subsequently again in, ex, in, in, in extra time. Then once, he, once that happened, you had a bad feeling that they were going to somehow get the seven points. But then, to see the try scored by... Deeks, was it, uh, when he danced through the con- uh, Wilting Connacht team and they go to the TMO to check for blocking and Billy Twelvetrees is actually holding Andrew Brown by the arm. It's a clear case of obstruction and he only looked, the TMO and himself only looked at once before he awarded the try. Um, it was just cruel beyond words. Connacht would now be looking forward to a home playoff against Bordeaux Begla, which would be a split of about 125,000 gate. More than that, they'd have a shot at the Champions Cup and more than that, the big single thing is the recruitment drive that, that would have ensued. They certainly might have been able to recruit maybe one or two world-class players that they might, may not now be able to. It's a bit like a soccer team, a bit like Liverpool or whoever, not getting into Champions League or getting into the Champions League. It's just such more attractive proposition for would-be signings from the Southern Hemisphere or wherever else. It reminded me, Jerry, of growing up in the 80s and 90s and watching Ireland, and this seemed to happen us all the time. And it's as if there's something in a ref's mind that if it's the inferior team or the perceived inferior team, then things will go against them. And really, this doesn't happen Ulster, Leinster, Munster anymore, I don't think. I just feel as if we get an, an even rub of the green. But with Connacht, it's happened to them a couple of times this season. And fair enough, Pat Lamb overreact previously in the season. But this time, and like you say, the long-term repercussions, this isn't just one game. It's, it, you feel like there's a short window with Connacht that doesn't apply to possibly any other team in, in Europe at the moment. In other words, if they don't make top six this season or next, or certainly next, under yeah. Lamb's watch... You wonder, will they ever, because the IRFU have been backing them more financially in latter years than they have done previously. Um, and they put together PGB and they've balanced the books very well. And they've made a sign like Bundiaki, who apparently cost them, they offered 50000 a year more than, uh, or, than Leinster or Munster were prepared to offer them. That's how they got them. Will that continue to be the case if, they're, if they are in the Challenge Cup? And finishing just outside and seventh and missing in the playoffs is effectively as good as finishing last. It makes no difference. They're in the Challenge Cup next year. And yes, you're right. There is a perception of Connacht that they are the Cinderella province in Ireland and that somehow they don't get the rub of the green. And they've always thought they've got very poor officiation and the penalty counts consistently go against them when an Irish referee does an, an all-Irish derby. And it, you're right, it's like Ireland in the old days. When you're at the bottom of the food chain, food chain, you get the stale bread, and that's what they're getting. What in particular seems to have become a bugbear for a lot of people in rugby, is that fair to say? 
Look, you know, libel laws and everything else, I, there's lots I'd like to write about that man. I just, I, I look at referees and I, I see referees, they're just, they're, their influence on the game is now far too profound. And now we've got the situation, we've seen in all three home games, where there was late referrals to TMOs, two of them induced by the big screen and the crowd's reaction. Certainly in one instance, that was definitely the case. Um, George Clancy was setting a scrum for the end game in Glasgow against Ulster. Ulster are leading and have, pro- and have a dominant scrum and are on top with a couple of minutes left. They probably win that game, except the crowd holler over Matawalu's dive when Mickey Lutton put his arm across him. And he goes back to have a look at that. And it's rewarding diving and it's, re- it's encouraging crowds to become involved. Wayne Barnes has done this in games this season as well. Nigel Owens was a different case. He never signalled a try. When um, Matavesi went over the line, the 80 minutes up against Munster and Thomond Park, he immediately went back to the TMO because he wasn't sure about the knock-on. Another dramatic end game follows Nigel around. You could do a top 20 now and you'd be, list- you'd be leaving out some real crackers. Um, but they're having too, too profound an influence. Like That decision by Romain Poit, particularly the one against John Muldoon for holding on, not every referee gives that. And it's a completely different outcome with vastly different repercussions. And unlike... Nigel Owens. Nigel Owens lets games breathe. Uh, Wayne Barnes and Romain Poit seem to suffocate them. It strikes me that it is. It, in some ways, rugby is still quite a small sport. It's a, there are only a certain amount of referees, certainly high-profile referees. And in, f- in football and other sports, they, there's a hate figure and that guy kind of disappears to a certain extent. Whereas in rugby, there are two or three guys, particularly in Irish rugby, who I think teams are now dreading when they, uh, when they referee their guys. But, but you'll see with the BT and the Sky coverage as well, they now see Roman Poit in that category the same as Irish fans so it's not just us I don't right. think but there's, I don't think there's any other sport where you can have these actual hate yeah. figures and when you have coaches such as Joe Smith or you hear say Sean O'Brien or Shane Jennings or Peter Armani or whoever it is in the build up to a game talking about the referee so much and how much analysis they have to do it's ridiculous it's obviously maybe the hardest job of any major international sport for a referee and they need help but at the same time there's some guys there and you feel with Poit and Wayne Barnes in particular they're in love with the laws of the game where, say, um, some of the better referees... Nigel Owens. They, they actually, Nigel Owens, they actually love the game and they mm. want it to flow and they have some idea of what a good game of rugby is. Whereas these other guys are so obsessed with the laws and looking out for it the whole time, you just don't trust them. Yeah, I, I mean, I put JP Doyle in that category. There are very few, sadly, Nigel Owens around. <clears throat> and even the Bath semi-final against Leicester, 13-3 penalty count to Leicester at halftime. Some of the, the yellow card against um, Anthony Watson was just ridiculous. Bath were so brilliant, they rose above it and scored seven tries from eight visits to the Leicester 22. Um, Munster Ospreys was a belter of a game because Nigel Owens lets it flow. Um, he's not as pedantic. He doesn't look, it seems to me, to give penalties as much. Um, whereas Poit, it just controversy and controversial decisions just seem to follow him around too much. And, uh, and it's just, there are so many games now. I mean, the Ireland All Blacks match, you know, that was Nigel Owens again, pinging yeah. Jack McGrath with very similarly. So many matches are now effectively being decided by one man's interpretation, which can be different from another man's interpretation. Well, there's and more and more games coming down to the to, last yes. play of the game yeah. because teams know, they know how to defend now and they know, like, they know that sort of five-minute window coming towards the end of a game and how it ebbs and flows. And if you've got a lead, teams completely change the way they play. Mm-hmm. So that's why more and more often um, the major games we see in the Six Nations the whole time now, it's coming down to the it, last Is game. there any way... Sorry, yeah, Jerry. Do you, th- do you think it goes back to... you remember back, I think it was in 2008, when Munster played pick and jam for the last five minutes against Toulouse in the yeah. Millennium Stadium to close out the... Um, uh, your Heineken Cup final and Toulouse gave out yards and yeah. yards about it and about four weeks later I was watching the French Championship final in Stade de France and Toulouse did the exact 
same thing to run the clock down and claim the Bukele de Breno and they weren't complaining about it then yeah. but the IRB did understandably react because it was, it was sullying wrong. the game yeah. it was wrong that you could just stick the ball up your jumper and run down the clock for two or three minutes but you know, three three players going in in a, in a pod one going to ground and effectively the two sealing it off for them and it's right that they've stopped doing it but they've almost gone overboard now and they're looking out to do it against teams unfairly and certainly in the case of Connacht it was the most blatantly unfair inconsistent interpretation how Tom Palmer is not penalised for lying all the wrong side of the ball which is what Watt did before and subsequently but then you know you look at French you look at French top 14 rugby and the standard of French refereeing and so many decisions go to the home sides and so many wins about the home side I've often said that you know the referee gives a penalty amazing penalty that in the Toulouse uh, Bordeaux Begler game I don't know whether you saw it yes. the Bordeaux get a scrum attacking scrum on the Toulouse 22 and he gives the penalty and Boxes is in front of the posts and misses it. <laughs> misses it. I mean, it was just, you felt sorry, but it cost Bordeaux a place in the playoffs and condemned them to a, a trip to Gloucester, which should have been Connacht next Sunday. Um, but I would say that referee, that con between the sticks, he'd want to have left the car engine running. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, Connacht, uh, Pat Lamb told you, Jerry, after the game that they had three aims at the start of the season, yeah. qualified for the Champions Cup, yeah. have more players playing for Ireland and more Indigenous players. Now, I guess in a strange way maybe not qualify for the Champions Cup certainly shouldn't affect the indigenous players if anything there might be more of a chance for guys to get in there bearing in mind what you said about recruitment but overall how happy can Pat Lamb be with that season? Well as he also said himself um, and he wasn't patting himself in the back it was Connacht's best ever season they had 10 Pro 12 wins it's their highest finish they got into the playoffs on merit they were in the top 6 for most of the season they've had some excellent wins they made the sports ground into a bit of a fortress injuries hit them hard with the size of their squad um, towards the end of the season and they were running on empty but wow how did they run on empty and they ran on empty primarily through the work of their academy and the players they produced. I mean, some of the players who are having storming second halves there yesterday off the bench or starting were unheard of a couple of years ago, like the Jack Cardi at out half, Michael Connolly off the bench, others. They were just, nobody would have known them, even in Connacht at the start of the season. So he definitely ticked that box quite brilliantly. Um, Robbie Henshaw has become a mainstay for Ireland. Okay, you could argue that he would have done that coming through any problems. I think Robbie Henshaw's career has unquestionably benefited from being a Connacht player as opposed to being a Leinster player. Um, I don't think he would have got anything like the same game time with any of the other problems that he's got that he has done with Connacht. And this has contributed to him playing for Ireland and becoming a mainstay for Ireland. My fear is that he's on his way to Leinster within a a year. And it really would be important if Connacht could somehow hold on to him. But my information is that Leinster have been making covetous glances towards him and uh, and encourage him to come to their province um, on a fairly persistent basis lately. But you feel one more year will be beneficial? I think he... Is he not at a point now where he can, this is very patronising maybe towards Connacht, but is is he not at a stage where he will command a starting place at Leinster... Therefore, oh, now he would, yes. yes. Now he would. Yeah, yeah, now he would. And that's why Leinster want him. Yeah. Um, and because Brian O'Driscoll and, and Gordon Darcy, uh, their careers are over. Effectively, Darcy about to be, O'Driscoll's is. So there's a bit of a void there in midfield they could do with him. But I mean, they've already got Ben Teal and they've already got uh, Luke Fitzgerald and others coming through. So I don't think their need for him is as great as Connacht's need. And I think also he's the single most important player in the Connacht setup because he's become a hero for young kids and he's proof that you can come through the underage Connacht school system, Connacht Academy with Nigel Carroll into the Connacht team and get into the Ireland team. Uh, and that's very important for their future. I can see where Pat Lamb's coming from. You were there to see Munster as well, who seems to be the better team against the Ospreys, almost contrived to lose the game right at the end. Uh, does that matter at this stage of the season? Or is it just about, look, we're into a final here? Well, it would have mattered that they lost and they very nearly did. Um, 
They played really well after a very strong Osprey start. I, some people were saying, no, nothing much happened in the first half. I thought the first 20 minutes was brilliant. Very often scores come later in the game because of what happened in the first 20 minutes. And the Ospreys and Munster attacked in turn in that first 20 minutes. I couldn't recall one handling error. The, the quality of that first quarter was really high. It was only three all at the end of it. But they also knew that they had a referee who was encouraging the game to flow. They had a, a crowd that was disappointing given the circumstances. Paul O'Connell's last ever game at Thoman Park. You'd have thought more than 16 and a bit thousand would have turned up. But they were, they, were, they were good fans. They were hardcore fans. They were real rugby fans. It was a great atmosphere. And um, Munster's second, uh, finished the first half and started the second. They scored two fine tries. They go 16-3 up. And I'm trying to imagine Anthony Foley at the base of a Shannon scrum or a Munster scrum in a cup semi-final when you're winning 16-3 to tell the scrum have to go on a dummy run inside and he popped the ball blind to his left side, left-hand winner in the blind side. I mean, it was just such a risky bizarre play at 16-3 up, up in the Cup semi-final. And then they invite them in with a poor grubber after constructing their third try. And, and then, of course, they missed 15 points off the tee. Had Munster lost that game, it would have been, an, I think it would have been a ninth semi-final defeat in their last 10. And they'd have been kicking themselves all summer long. Now, O'Connell uh, pretty much confirmed that it was going to be his last yeah. game. I suppose people weren't 100% sure on that. He, he slipped it in mm. on TV after yeah. the game, which is a fairly unspectacular way of mm. confirming his retirement, I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As usual, a bit like Con at the print media at the bottom of the food chain. We just get the stale bread. <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what, what has he said on TV? Let's, let's yeah, write this. Yeah, uh, it's really annoying. Um, Sky, those great friends of the Pro 12. Uh, it seems like he, ha- he hadn't necessarily thought it through, but that he was admitting it. It yeah. shows the value of actually asking the questions. I know a lot a lot of the times TV reporters are criticised for asking a coach is he going to quit or asking mm. a player no, is he, he going to retire every week I know but eventually yeah. but if he hadn't been asked this week the answer wouldn't mm. have happened do you know what I mean yeah, he actually yeah. retired live on TV which which goes to show that you probably are supposed to ask those questions even though they can yeah. be very yeah tiresome. Simon's right though we, he do, we almost feel guilty we ask him as much but of course he only made himself available to TV and he said it on TV and one presumes he did that quite deliberately Yeah, he knew what he was doing clearly he's told somebody something because, you know, they formed a guard of honour for him at the end. Um, why would the Munster players have done that? Okay, yeah. maybe they read the papers and they read social media as well. But clearly that was his last game. Even He didn't need to confirm it. The way he went across to both sides of the ground on his own, applauding the fans, it was quite evidently his Thoman Park farewell. Um, I'm coming round to the view. Remember I said in this show before that I thought he might retire. Um, as the one who broke the story about Toulon being interested and really wanting him, and my information, as I told you off, off air, what it was, that this was a very real proposition. I'm coming to the view now he's going to go to the RFU and ask them, can he, might, might he get out of the last year of his contract and finish up his career in Toulon? Well, you really think that's going to happen now? I'm coming more to that view. Yeah. I am, actually. I am. It's, it's, it ticks a lot of boxes. He certainly owes Munster nothing. And if he could sign off with... Having signed off with a dramatic win in Thomas Park, were he to sign off with the Pro 12 title, it'd be a nice way to go. The World Cup, what more has he got left to prove for Ireland and Munster by staying on another year? The only reason not to do that, I, I would have thought, is if it was to create any ill feeding in Munster or in the IRFU, because we don't know what Paul O'Connell's next steps are, but were he to try to get into coaching, it's just for a lot of reasons he wouldn't want any bad feeling between himself and Munster in particular. But I don't see why there should be. I, I think he should be allowed to, if he wants to go to Toulon next year, well, anybody who felt badly about Paul O'Connell spending the last few months in South of France would be in the wrong. <laughs> Fairly churlish. Let, they'd, be, they'd be wrong. They'd be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think he can pander to people who think that way. Um, people may voice that opinion, but I would imagine people at the higher levels of Munster Rugby, there's absolutely no way they can say to Paul O'Connell, no. And anyway, having somebody against their will, somebody particularly like Paul O'Connell, that's going to backfire against you. 
Yeah, and he owes Munster and Ireland absolutely nothing. We owe him for all the, the service he's given to Irish rugby. He's unquestionably the best pound for pound best forward I've ever seen come out of Ireland. Yeah. I think his, and you could so right up to the end, and we've seen it this season and all his games, the way he produced those back to back performances in the last two games of Six Nations, the way he, I mean, his influence on a game now is because of the, he's just such an iconic figure on the pitch. That stat, statistics damn lies and statistics. I don't know what he carried for. Let's say he, was, he carried for 35 metres on Saturday. Mm. It was worth 135 because when he goes five, the energy it gives team and crowd alike, it's almost seismic-like. You can almost hear the earth shudder underneath. And um, I'd imagine he could go to Toulon and immediately become... They, what they want, they wanted a replacement for Johnny Wilkins and they want a, an iconic European figure to go with all their... Uh, Southern Hemisphere figures and Ali Williams and Backy's both there are retiring so he's a perfect fit it's a great experience for him if he does do it he's got a young family um, go over there uh, if he's going to step onto the coaching ladder why not go abroad for a while and get out of Munster as he said himself last week you know Munster's a bit of a bubble and, and learn like Ronan O'Gara learn the language learn a different culture I think it would be quite an eye opener for him all in all I think it ticks a lot of boxes who knows maybe I'm wrong maybe he'll retire but clearly anyway he's not hanging around after the World Cup and Next Saturday will be his last game for Munster. Well, maybe he could take over as Leinster coach. That could be. <laughs> that's taking him out of the Munster bubble. Take over from Matt O'Connor. Well, I tell you, what, here's one for you. How about how about John O'Gibbs and Ronan O'Gara as Leinster? As Leinster, the team. You know what I mean? The ticket. I think there's something Ken might have mentioned this actually last week. Would Ronan O'Gara not possibly be involved in some way? And I was thinking, no, no, he'd be, he'd be too close to some of those Leinster players. He's a Munster guy. He works. He's worked for the last two years with Johnny Sexton. They have an excellent working relationship. Um, moving from skills coach, whatever he is, assistant coach in Racing, to backs coach in Leinster, where to come to pass, would be an upward step in his career. Um, I think that would tick a few boxes as well. I'm just saying, just throwing mm. it out there. My information is that John O'Gibbs is one of three, is one of six on the shortlist, along with Robbie Deans and along with Ewan McKenzie. Okay. My guess is that there would be um, an Irish candidate in there as well maybe Bernard Jackman I don't know um, maybe Gervin Dempsey there's talk of him I would be very surprised if they went down that route particularly with Leo Cullen only starting his second season as assistant coach it seems to me that having gone down the route of Cheka, Joe and Matt O'Connor i.e. promoting a club coach or hitherto an assistant stroke backs coach um, not a high profile name because it didn't work with Matt O'Connor and that's the conclusion the PGB have come to I get the impression they're going to go for more high-profile coach this time around. Simon, John O'Gibbs and Ron O'Gara, what do you think? Well, yeah, Gibbs' record is absolutely incredible, yeah. and that's the best the Leinster Fords have ever played was under him. Ron O'Gara coming back, yeah. I don't think there'd be anything in Ron O'Gara's mind that would think, uh, I'm ex-Munster and therefore Leinster wouldn't work for me. And no. he, he's, he's always <laughs> been close to the Leinster players that, that he played with the Irish yeah, that's team, really close clear to you, yeah. um, thought along similar lines to them. Um, and we know from, say, O'Driscoll's book that at times he sought O'Gara's advice. So there's, there isn't a disconnect between him and the Leinster players, I don't think. Um, maybe he wants to further his CV a little bit more. Yeah, it's unlikely because also John O'Gibbs is mm. only one year into a two-year deal. Now, of course, contracts can be broken or paid off or whatever else. Um, but you're right, John O'Gibbs knows his way around. Three Heineken Cups in his time there as forwards coach. He's made a palpable difference to Claremont. He is perhaps seeing that it's a marathon, not a sprint, and is very cleverly planning, plotting his career. I mean, it was a good career move to come to Leinster from Waikato, stay there so long, work under Joe Schmidt. I'd say he learned to load there. It's good for him to come, go to Claremont, learn the language, learn the French culture, work with a really high-powered team like Claremont, who are in the semis again. 
and you know spend another year or two there. There's time enough for him to be. I mean, I would imagine with his CV now, he could get a head coaching job in Ireland, in France, in New Zealand, maybe even in the English Premiership. So there's no mad rush. It you know be careful for what you wish for in that game, as poor old Matt O'Connor has, has found out. You can you know you can, it can very easily stop for you, and it's not the most secure. Um, career path what, in the world. What characteristics do you think the next Leinster coach should have? Um, <clears throat> clearly, they need one who demands and exacts high standards, whether it's a very subtle form of fear that Joe Schmidt produced or Michael Checker, but they cannot have too lax a head coach. Um, they need a bad cop at the top of the tree to go with a good cop. That's, that's what's worked for them. Mm. And it seems when they go good cop, good cop, it just it tapers off a little bit and standards dip. So um, I, I'm not so sure about Robbie Deans myself, probably coming from the perspective of a journalist because he does not give good press conferences at mm. all. He's taciturn. He's extremely dour. He is extremely taciturn and curt and Didn't odd. suit the Aussies. No. no Personality-wise. No, not at all. Um, and seemed to have a real problem in controlling discipline. I mean, discipline was a real issue for the Wallabies. So many players <clears throat> became disenchanted or disaffected, most obviously Quade Cooper. Ewan McKenzie, I would have thought, would have been an ideal fit. I think back to the Queensland Reds-Lions match that I attended and the way the Reds just had a go from everywhere in the pitch. It's the brand of rugby that certainly Leinster fans crave yeah. and have been sorely missing for much of the last two seasons. Um, and I thought he was doing a really good job with the Wallabies head coach and he shouldn't have been let go. And the only reason he was let go was for matters off the pitch not to do with his coaching and I'm still not sure the Wallabies job didn't come a bit too soon for Michael Checker we'll see I would have liked to see McKenzie finish out his tenure there but um, you hear mixed things I've heard mixed things some Leinster players I've spoken to not so sure blah 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 Gibbs again is he actually a head coach material you know he's not he's a little bit taciturn himself he's not the most comfortable in, in the glare I don't think he, he seemed to quite seem to suit him being in the background behind Joe it would be a step up that's why I think Somebody like Rona Gar would be ideal, that he can wheel out in front. It's a bit like having a Roy Keane as your assistant. You can wheel him out in front of the media. He'll command respect from the training ground and so forth and so on. Um, but I think it's going to be one of those three, unless they surprise us all again and go with some. You know, it was a case of Michael Who, and it was largely a case of Joe Who. Yeah. You know, and who knows? It, but the, just you get that impression because of the people that are already on the shortlist that they're going down a different route this time. A new candidate as well. Would they be? The, would they absolutely want it? I mean, it's not the great job that people make it out to be. In the start of two months, first two months of next season, Simon, Leinster could be missing up to 16, 17, 18 players for the first six games of the Pro 12. If Ireland make the final weekend of the World Cup, the new Leinster coach will have two weeks to get them ready for the first round of the European Champions Cup, for which they're probably going to be a third seed and therefore have somebody like Toulon or Claremont or whoever in their group. Um, and then... You know, and then there's the demands of the Six Nations, and you're there primarily to serve the international team, which Leinster do very well, by the way. They've back, you know, backboned back-to-back yeah. Six Nations titles. So I'm, I'm not so sure it's the great, quite the great job everybody makes out to be. You, Leinster have had their golden era. You think back to that backline that won the 2012 Heineken Cup: Sexton, Darcy, O'Driscoll, Nasewa. I mean, are they ever going to produce a backline with four players of that quality in those four positions ever again? Well, that's what I was going to ask you. For the first time in their history, I think they're. Their backline are their weakness and the forwards are their strength. Mm. Um, and maybe that's partially down to Leo Cullen as well and what role he will have next year, we'll see. But do you think the next coach should have, say it, it is O'Gara and he has a little bit more of an idea of what the backline should do, should it be a guy with more folks of that area, whereas John O'Gibbs ultimately was a forwards coach and that was his speciality? Leinster's biggest problem, backline, should the next guy be 
a back specialist? Not necessarily, because there are specialists within the management team now. Michael Checker, um, the Leinster played some wonderful rugby to begin with on the Checker. Um, admittedly, um, they became more forward orientated when Mike Brewer's influence grew within the team, and then it came, kind of became Joe Schmidt back in there. There aren't that many Joe Schmidts in the world, you mm. know. Joe Joe's the best best around. I mean, Ireland have won back to back Six Nations titles. Are you really telling me that Ireland have more talent than France? Or Wales, well, or on, even England. On that, Jerry, how much of a role will Joe Schmidt have to play in who the next Leinster coach is? Um, they might well ask him, yeah. They might well ask him what his views are and so forth, but ultimately it would be a Leinster decision. I suppose he would be consulted. I and I would actually ask, I, I think, yeah, and on, the, on that, I don't think Matt O'Connor helped his cause, certainly, by falling out publicly with Joe Schmidt. It doesn't seem so. Yeah, Neil, Neil Francis goes so far as to say that Schmidt had a decisive role in the firing of Matt O'Connor. He says, it looks to me as though the national coach and the IRFU performance director decided enough was enough. Joe Schmidt wants to win this World Cup, and he's a real chance. So anything that remotely interferes with that ambition, well, we know enough now that he does not hold back. Would you agree with Francis? Um, no, I wouldn't. I don't think that Joe Schmidt would have gone to um, Mick Dawson and said, I want this man out or anything like that. Not no. necessarily. And that, I don't think that Matt O'Connor would have had any influence, good, bad or indifferent, on the World Cup, between now and the World Cup. It wouldn't matter if you or me or Simon or Matt O'Connor or anybody else was coaching Leinster now because they come into pre-season four weeks' time with Ireland and that's it. Sure, but Schmidt doesn't necessarily have to go to the IRFU and say it. The fact, even by dint of doing that press conference, of going out of his way to slap down Matt O'Connor given the influence that Schmidt I, now has in Irish it, rugby, is that not, uh, by, almost by definition? It certainly didn't help, oh, yeah. for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm, if, if you were Mick Dawson or you were in the Leinster PGB, you must want, this is not healthy, to have our head coach falling out with the performance director and the international coach. And you even wonder, you know, Sean Cronin having to have an operation, so forth and so on, would that have happened if there'd been a better working relationship between the Leinster head coach and the IRFU high performance director. It was very much um, an IRFU call for Cronin to go in and have his operation, which means he should be back comfortably for the World Cup warm-up games. One can't imagine that decision would have been made if, say, Jimmy Goppard's drop goal in Marseille had gone through the post and Leinster win the Champions Cup final. It'd be very hard to imagine that would have been the case. So certainly that didn't help but if, if they had made the final, or if the rub results had been better, or if the rugby had been better, it wouldn't have been an issue. Ultimately, it came down to performances and results, and that was the primary factor. Last quick word, uh, Barbarians match on Thursday. Is this uh, it's part of World Cup warm-up, but what exactly can Joe Schmidt get out of this? Um, I'm, not too, I'm not so sure an awful lot will get out of the World Cup, per se. I think what it's doing is um, it's keeping... Leinster players busy for two more weeks, basically, because their season ended so prematurely. And the management wanted all the frontline players. That you wanted their, they wanted their seasons to end simultaneously. They all go off on holidays uh, on Sunday or Monday next week, and they come back together in four weeks' time. It didn't do that one group of players might be two weeks ahead of the other. As it's turned out, with Leinster being bulk suppliers, um, it's worked out pretty well in that regard. I think what it will afford... Joe Schmidt to do is have a core of experienced, mostly Leinster players now, with a sprinkling of Ulster, one or two, and then some good young Leinster players coming into the mix as well, like maybe a Luke McGrath or whoever else, Tyke Furlon, people like that working with Schmidt for a few days. Um, and then there's going to be a 44-man squad in July, so maybe one or two of them will force their way into that. But it's still hard to see any bolters, isn't it, coming all the way through from now, like a Conor Murray four years ago. You know what I mean? Murray ended the season just breaking into the Munster team, started the next season as fifth-choice scrum half, found his way into the World Cup squad and ended up being the first-choice scrum half. I don't see a story like that. The only 
bolter per se you could maybe see as well Reese Ruddock is going to be a very interesting tour for him going with Emerging Ireland he's involved in this game uh, and Dunica Ryan Munster aren't obviously involved in this game nor Connacht players but Ryan's got a good body of work Munster getting to finals certainly helped him and he might have a I think he's got a really good chance to make the World Cup, but I don't see this game having a huge bearing on Ireland's work. I don't know. I disagree. I think there's been really? I think there's been a history under Joe Schmidt of players coming from nowhere. The obvious ones being, say, Dave Carney and Trimble and these boys. But I think when somebody's in camp with him for a couple of weeks and he gets a close-up look and he might see some progress based on advice he gives that player, they they can come from nowhere to being in the Irish setup. You mean like a Tyg Furlan or a Luke McGrath, something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah. Luke um, McGrath probably should have got more chances this year, for example. No, it's, it's still a huge leap, but I think it's possible. Yeah, well, he's got, who's he got in front of him? He's got Conor Murray in front of him, Owen Redden, Isaac Boss, they've been in the pecking order ahead of him, Kieran Marmion. It's possible. Yeah, I'll give you that one. That's a long shot, but it's possible. All right, Jerry, we've taken a big enough chunk out of your morning at this stage. We'll let you go. Thanks <laughs> Cheers, for Cheers, no worries. In the final round of the game, Andy You boys read that Neil Francis piece that uh, I referred to there. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. Uh, Joe Schmidt, fairly central role in... Well, I think Edinburgh so. Society. I mean, I think so. I, I don't know the first thing about it, apart from the fact that Joe Schmidt called a press conference specifically to uh, refute these things that Matt O'Connor had said. That did seem pretty big at the yeah, time. like when a guy does that, you know, it seems as though he, that was a point he really wanted to make. The argument he could legitimately make, Schmidt, is that he's just fighting his corner there. Which is yeah, but you know, you know he's in. A, he's well, a, it's fighting your corner when you know you're quite the proactively put upon uh, underdog, uh, deciding to take a few swings yeah. when you're the lord, the lord of Irish rugby. That's what he should be called. Yeah, uh, he towers above the other guy, like in, in status. You know, if it, there's no that he's vastly more powerful when he takes him to task like that, or, or you know denies or refutes things that he said then it's only going to play out one way really given the power relation between those two yeah, I think so. uh, it's nice to have the hurling championship up and running properly my first look at Henry Shefflin uh, his first it would have been his first live outing as a TV analyst I thought he was really good actually I'm looking forward to watching Shefflin through the summer uh, there were a few moments that that struck really but one of them was 
when he explained the mindset. If people didn't see the game, Shawnee Tobin, the Limerick, uh, Limerick substitute, comes on. He was one of the red cards. Owen Kelly earlier reckoned that he didn't deserve to be red carded. But uh, regardless of that, he came on, got the shoulder welcome, Murph, as you described mm-hmm. it on TV once, and decided to give, give it back, as you have to do, really. And that's what Henry Shefflin said. Henry Shefflin said, look, you come on, particularly as a forward, usually the transgressor is the defender. You take the couple of hits and then you, you have a decision to make. If I, do I just ignore this? If so, will he think he's already gained a psychological edge? So essentially what Sheffield was saying was there is no decision to make. He feels, he was kind of talking about as though, look, we all know this is ridiculous, yeah. but you sort of have to do it. And uh, yeah, that just was one of many, get, many just, good interjections he made. Yeah, just don't get the old, uh, just don't get the old Hurley involved. That's the basic lesson you need to learn here. I mean, you can literally do, you could shoulder there indefinitely, 12, 14, 16 minutes. I mean, if, if, if your marker is too busy shouldering you for the last 15 minutes of the game, you're helping your team's cause. I mean, you're, you've taken one player effectively completely out of the game. Mm-hmm. So It depends how highly you rate the defender and how highly you rate the forward. I mean, if you, you could argue that it is worth just taking a guy out of the game like that. Well, I mean, he's not going to back down. That's the one thing we learned yesterday from Henry Shefflin, Shoney Tobin, and everyone else involved. The last thing you can do is allow that last shoulder to be to be your opponents. Alright, that's it from this podcast. A reminder that we do have our tribute out to Bill O'Hurley that uh, comprised of the, is comprised of the interview we did with Bill last year. That was late last summer after he announced his retirement. It was after the World Cup, I should say, so after he had retired from RT at that point and he was really amazing chatting to us. We were delighted to get the opportunity to chat to an absolute legend of, uh, of Irish life really and certainly of Irish sports broadcasting. Thanks very much for the time being, Kieran. Thank you, Owen, and thank you, Ken. Thanks, thank you, Ken. Kieran, and thank you, Owen. Thanks very much for listening. We'll chat to you soon. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 